Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 61. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 61. Ken McLeod know that, and I don't want to blow trumpets, I've blown blow a few of my own in the past, but this is a show, do you know what I mean, this has got everything in it, and if I was going to kind of show or spread out the word of Starship Sova, and you kind of wanted to, or I wanted to kind of do it and like have a little bit of like an example, this show would be it, this is going to be a cracking show, so please stick around, I'll give you a heads up. What is going on in the show? We have an editorial by my good self entitled The Sofa's Gadgets. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to tell you everything I've got that I put together the show, what I use in my daily life as a function of the show to help put the show together, everything that makes the Starship Sofa actually physically get onto the internet. We have another poem by Anne K. Schwader. Flash fiction comes today from Louis Shiner. The War at Home, which is a great flash fiction, and it's narrated by the master himself, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. We have January's Science News by Jim Campanella. This week's show is accompanied as well by some great art by Skeet. We have, please check out the art cover for this show, and check out Skeet's doing a little fact article on how he came together with this art and how he came and made it all happen, so listen to that. Main fiction tonight is by Ken McLeod, Jesus Christ Reanimator. What a story. And what a great narration by Matthew Wayne Selznick. Coming up last, but by no means least, we have new titles. A new title by David J. Williams. Please check out that. It is my book of the month. So like I say, this show is just going to be one of them shows where it's like a, a shining example of what the Starship Sofa and what Oral Delights and what everybody that listens to this show and what helps out in this show can do. This is a great show. Do stick around. <laughs> So this is the editorial, and like I say, it is entitled The Sofa's Gadgets. And there was a little kind of thread, and I don't think it actually kicked off much or anything like that, but there was a, I noticed a little thread on the forums of asking, what equipment do I use, and you know, how do I kind of get the Starship Sofa up and away? Well, equipment-wise, I've got this mic. Actually, we bought two of them, me and Kieran, when we kind of first kicked off, and we've never had to upgrade or anything like that. And they are, let me just have a look, an E815S by Sennhauser. 
great little mic. Or you know, it's one of those kind of handheld mics, and it's clamped onto a stand there, tabletop. Fantastic. We actually, I got two actually big mic stands as well, so we actually could do this standing up. But for a long time now, I've just been kind of sitting at the desk doing this show. But that mic is great. It was recommended to me by James Norton from Podshock. And that was a great recommendation. Do you know, James, I, I emailed James when I first kicked off, when we first actually kicked off podcasting. And, you know, I just said, have you got any advice? Have you got any of this, that? And James was a lovely guy and he took a long time and took us through the kind of process as well, but recommended this mic and this mic's been perfect. Mixing desk. I have now a mixing desk as well. So this mic and if I'm going to use Skype, I have cables from me mixing desk that go to my computer. I'm using an Elise Multimix 8 and in a little kind of impressive looking bit of kit. Do you know what I mean? I try to slide it onto my desk when I bought this this bit of kit and my wife sharp spotted it. You know, it's one of them where it's got all the fingers and dials and, you know, buttons and everything like that. But it's great. Do you know what I mean? It just does the job. So I'm really impressed with that. What I record the Starship Sofa on is I recorded on... I used to record it on Adobe Edition 2.0, but I was having a little bit of trouble with that. And it wasn't anything to really do, I think, to do with Adobe Edition 2.0. But I, I downsized and I went to Adobe Edition 1.5. I was recommended that by Martin. You know my friend Martin, the narrator Martin, sound engineer. He recommended that one. And it's great. And you know why I like Adobe Edition is... From all of them, you know, and I'm talking about Audacity and I'm talking about, the, I think it's Sony SoundForge. I haven't used the Apple software, so I'm not in a position to quote on those ones. But Adobe Edition can just get rid of a lot of hiss and a lot of, you can do a lot with Adobe Edition in the kind of post-production. And that's essential, especially for the Starship Sova when we're getting so many different material from different people from different mics you know all over the kind of world we're getting different recordings adobe edition seems to be able to kind of at least sharpen them up and get them to the the best quality that i can put out and actually if i can't do it then i send the file over to martin and martin sprinkles it up so some files you hear you know like when you do like i do little sections or someone does a little section on the sofa it's either been tinkered by me it hasn't been tinkered by me or it's been sent off to martin because some of the material i get in raw you know it's coming from everyone and not everyone is clued up on aspects of kind of getting a nice final quality audio you know it's 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 a learning curve and it's a steep learning curve you know what i mean but we'll take any audio and then if i can't fix it then i'll pass it on to martin martin can sort out anything do you know so Adobe Edition, I recommend that, you know, if you can't afford Adobe Edition, please, by all means, you know, Audacity is free, that's great, I've actually got that on my computer, and, you know, very often, very rarely, I can say very often, very rarely, I will use Audacity, and it's more, if I'm maybe working on my daughter's laptop, you know, time is a bit pushed, and I've got to go somewhere else, and I'm actually away from my desk, and I'm editing somewhere else, I'll use it on my daughter's computer laptop. So that is the kind of the main thing is the mic, the mix and the software that I use. As a side of what do I kind of use for emails, I think everyone knows I'm a I'm a Google guy and it's Gmail all the way. Gmail is just a fantastic 
email equipment. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit of software kit. It's just so nice because the amount of spam I get is thousands and thousands. And Gmail might let in one a week, if that. I get more, and I'm classing this as spam, and it's actually me good wife just joining all these, getting these newsletters from Nectar Points here and Ladderoot Catalog there and everything like that. You know, and I'm like, oh, no. But I cannot recommend Gmail account, uh, Gmail products over the board. When I'm working with grants and we're kind of putting stories together and maybe, say, getting stories, you know, and it's like a, a database, Google products, Google Documents is just first class. Grant can work on it, I can work on it. It's online all the time and we can just, there's no hassle. Google Calendar, what I use actually to plot this show and like the weeks in advance, I use Google Calendar. Perfect. And I can mix it with my shifts as well. So I know what I'm doing on my shifts, which is all helps to kind of plot the, the sofa's course, if you could say. And What's great is now, and talk about another bit of kit, is my phone. I've just moved over to the Android Google system, or actually just moved on to that working platform with the new G1 phone from T-Mobile. And I'm not actually with T-Mobile. I'm still with Orange, but went on eBay, and I knew this phone was coming out, and I cannot recommend that phone again enough. I was a terrible texter. Terrible typist with the, just the kind of the thumb in normal text way. So frustrating. Terrible. This has got like a, a basically a keyboard. Fine and great. That's, I would learn actually, you know, for the years I've had the thumb, normal thumb text and phones. I've had to live with them. But what is good about this phone is the operating system. The Google Android operating system is first class. It's, you know, because it's Google, it just syncs with me emails, you know, and it just syncs with me calendars and I can have me shifts. You know, I know for like three years down the road, what me shift is, I can plot the, the sofa, you know, all that kind of far, all from me phone. It tells us when I've got an email from me Gmail account, which is brilliant because then I can just answer a proper email on me phone. Do you know, that's great. And it's actually... It's, I'm really up to date with all my email, you know, answering questions and everything like that. I'm up to date with it, which is, it's been a first, you know, it's never kind of, I've never known that system or my email account be inbox be empty. Do you know, there's always ones waiting for us every morning. I kind of wake up and, but I can now actually walk the dogs on clean hills and answer emails <laughs> heads down and everyone's thinking you ignorant bugger but that's the way that's what you've got to do to get the starships over out so that's the equipment i've also got a logitech which is one of the webcams which is a great bit of kit it's a great quality but i don't actually use it much it was all to do with you know if we're going to do like live tv show and i mean, because Starship Sova comes out once, twice a week, you've got to concentrate on that. And I just didn't have the time to kind of work out the intricates of doing it live as well. So when I record a show, you can actually watch us recording it. Do you know? If anyone wants to you stream who kind of knows the ins and outs, you know, please come and help us. That's fine. That'll be great. But I've got like a Logitech and it actually follows you around the room as well. So that's another bit of me kit. Probably one of the main bits of kit I use is my iPod. You know, and I've got one of those 30 gigabyte ones, the video ones. 
And that's, I'm sure, if I didn't have that, the Starship Rover would really be very hard to kind of put out because then there would be a lot of time where I would have to sit at the desk and listen to stories. You know, once I get all these stories in, I've got to just actually go through them and make sure that there's no little hiccups, you know, because inevitably, you know, there is hiccups and I need to actually edit them out. So what I do is I'll have the iPod on, I'll listen to a story and just make sure that story's perfect. And there's a couple of times I've had to send it to Grant when time's been pushed to say, Grant, let's listen to that story. Is there any mistakes? <laughs> but a fundamental part of one of my equipment is the iPod. You know, it's it's just such an invention and it's just such liberating to be able to like, do this editing stuff or actually just write notes about certain things that I need to edit out and about. One of my main bits of kit, and I don't really use this to assist very best is my Zoom H4 MP3 player. I've got one of them, and this is basically a portable MP3 recorder. And if you listen to the sanatorium show, this is where I'm kind of using it more and more. But I could even record the show, the full shows, Oral Delights, on this MP3 recorder and get no hiss, get a lovely, rich sound. You know, and I could do it from my bedroom, I could do it from the toilet. You know, I just need me notes. And then I can insert the certain stories as as I edit along. So the Zoom H4 is a vital bit of kit, and I'm lucky to get it. Do you know what I mean? I think it was quite expensive. I think it might have been two hundred, two hundred and twenty pounds. You know, I got it for a Christmas about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And in the first initial few months, I didn't use it. But like I say, it is it's great because. When you're outside, you can get the the ambience music. I don't mind, you know, like when I'm doing, like, say, the, the sanatorium show, and you can get, like, other dogs barking, birds twittering on, you know, you can get different noises. That's great, and it picks up them perfectly. So, you know, that's a, a nice little bit of kit. As to how I put together oral delights, well, basically, I'm, you know, I, everyone knows I can, I, I just ask, for some stories, you know, I've got all this big collection of short stories, and basically it's send a letter to an author, this is, you know, I'm Tony Smith, would you be kind enough to offer a story? I've got no money, <laughs> but I can, we can do a little bit of exposure, you know, and we can get you on the, the, the show, the story, it's a great, you know, it's a, it's a win-win for everyone. So I get the stories over, and it's the same with poems, flash fiction, do you know, and that's, all now on me can I've actually there's nothing I've got a little external hard drive a 500 gigabyte external I think it's a Western Digital is it and I think so external hard drive and that's vital because I've got all that kind of short stories and everything like that copied over there so basically putting together the show I've got all my material already recorded every so often throughout the month me fact article reviewers you know Amy Skeet, Jim, Rod and Matt, you know, they'll send over their work and make sure it's kind of logged and catalogued. Sometimes I've made a mistake and I've lost it and I've played the odd story. So you've got to be actually on the ball when you're you're putting together the show in case two things, in case I, which I actually did with Jim once, actually Jim Campanella sent us a story. It was actually the Ben Bova short story. Jim had already recorded it. Imagine Jim's face when he listened to that show and he heard his story that he narrated, you know, done by somebody else. So that's one of the kind of problems I face is, you know, maybe 
forgetting what I've done. So I've got to be on the ball there. So basically, I'm recording this show there now. And the way I do it for Oral Delights is I record the whole show in one batch. So from the very beginning, when you hear this, I'll just start. This is the Starship Sovax. <clears throat> See how I just dropped into that little, little voice there? So that's how I do it. I'll start at the beginning and I'll get to the very end. Just good night from me. So basically, I've got the, the, store, the, the whole show within about 12 to 15 minutes. The whole store's, show's there. And what I'll actually do is, even though I've got this kind of nice little fancy mic, which is it, it's acceptable to me, I'll still run it through a noise reduction and a hiss, part of the hiss reduction process in Adobe Audition. I get that out of the way, then I'll actually start at the beginning, and I've got a, another file which I just call bits. And this is what I've, I keep all my kind of little bits, you know, all the, the Starship Sofa music that you hear, all the little intros and everything like that. And I just work my way through the whole show. So I'll come up to the very beginning, or I'll start at the very beginning, and I'll add the Starship Sofa theme tune, if you like. Next, I'll go on to the, you know, the editorial and like, I'll insert the editorial. Then I'll go on to the poem, pick the poem from which poem I'm going to do and insert that. Once I get the whole show built up, save it as a WAV file. And that's like the best quality you can save it as a giant size file, you know. And that's one of the things I can certainly recommend with computers is. If you're gonna get to do, if you're gonna go down this line and you're gonna, you know, move with or work with massive audio files, some of my audio files, like the raw WAV versions, are nearly a gigabyte in size. You know, you're talking when they go actually live. Some of the ones that had the David Brin serial, they were two two and a bit hours long. Do you know when you're working with that with a, a WAV file? It's up nearly 700 megabytes. You know, 800. That's a big file to kind of move around. So. A while ago, I made the decision to like put as much memory in my computer as I possibly could. So I'm up to I'm up to the hilt with my memory. It's a Dell computer, Dell Dimensions five thousand, I think, but it's got four gigabytes of memory, and that's just so easy. You know, I can have umpteen, umpteen, umpteen programs running. Do you know, I can have like Photoshop to edit photographs. I can have audio recording. I can have a film. Nero, I think I've got Nero 7. That's burning away movies. You can have everything going on at once, do you know. And what is a little kind of treat, and I mentioned this a couple of times, I think maybe in the sanatorium show, I've got two screens. And two screens is actually really good. You know, you can work on editing the show, but I can still have the internet up and running and I can see what's going on and answer emails and everything like that. So, once I've actually got back to the actual... This is actually a, a very long introduction. Once I've got the the final show, you know, it's kind of basically edited, then I'll take it up onto Cleading Hills with the dogs and listen to it. Make sure it's okay, do you know what I mean? Note down any little fluffs by me, maybe, or any little kind of sound glips, bips, and everything like that. And you kind of get rid of them all, but I can actually, you know, if I can... If there's some ones that are standing out... Great. Get back, edit it all, change it and convert it down into MP3. That's it. Tag it so it's got some like a little bit of art cover on for it and upload it. There you go. 
views pick that up on a Wednesday night or whenever it is. Normally, I try and get my shows out, you know, <laughs> sometimes they're a little bit late, but I try and get them on a Wednesday, UK time, G- GMTV time, UK time, they'll go up at 10 o'clock in the morning. I always like to just set it at 10 o'clock in the morning and the same for the weekend shows, 10 o'clock in the morning. Then I'll, I, and I can actually check on now on my phone to see if it's uploaded and everything's okay. That is the Sofa Gadgets, the editorial. Long-winded one, I'm sorry. Yes, apologies. But that's just give you a little insight of what goes on, what I've got, what I use, how I get it up, and how it gets delivered to you. I hope you enjoyed that. I think that is enough of me. I think we'll get on to some poetry by Anne K. Schwerer. Narration today comes from Diane Severson. Diane, thank you so much. Again, your help is just fantastic. Thank you so much. Do pop over to Diane's site and say hello. Our fallen do not fall. Like satellites cast out of orbit, comrades spin away in epitaphs of vapor, visors gray with last breath wasted. Failing status lights, furtivist fireflies spasm in the night beyond our skirmish sphere. But none betray location long enough for us to say the briefest prayer of passage or last rites. Identity is memory, or so Earth's martial history teaches. The unknown may merit wreaths and honors, but few hearts embrace a cipher. Knowing what we know, we coin new stars for these who died alone, inscribing immortality on charts. First published in the 2007 contest chapbook for the Science Fiction Poetry Association. And thank you very much indeed. Do pop over to Anne's site. Both sites, I'll put links on. Check out her blog and her website. So we're going to come on to Flash Fiction and What a Short Story by Lewis Shiner. I'll give you a little heads up for Lewis Shiner. Born 1950, December 30th, 1950 in Oregon. American writer. Shiner began his career as science fiction writer, identified early on with the cyberpunk and later with more mainstream novels, albeit with a bit of a magical realism and fantasy elements. He was formerly a resident of Texas and one of the members of the Turkey City Writers Workshop. Several of his novels have rock music as a theme or a main focus, especially the musicians of the late 60s. In July 2007, Shiner created the website Fiction Liberation Front, FLF, as a venue for his short stories. The stories are actually released under Creative Commons license and are available in HTML and PDF formats. He's actually written a small manifesto explaining why he did this. And this short story is from that Fiction Liberation Front. His novels include Frontiera, Deserted Cities of the Heart, Say Goodbye, Black and White. Narration today comes from Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. I just thought Fred's voice for this is just fantastic. You know, so Fred, I put a link on the Fred site if anyone wants to go to the Fredosphere. Great narration, Fred. So, the Starship Sova and Oral Delights presents The War at Home by Lewis Shiner. Ten of us in the back of a Huey, assholes clenched like fists. 
Sea rations turn to snow cones in our bellies. Tracers float up at us, swollen, sizzling with orange light, like one dud firecracker after another. Ahead of us, the gunships pound landing zone dog with everything they have, flex guns, rockets, and fifty calibers. While the artillery screams overhead, and the Air Force A-1Es strafe the clearing into kindling. We hover over the LZ in the sudden phosphorus dawn of a flare, screaming, Land, motherfucker, land! While the tracers close in, the shell of the copter, ticking like a clock as the thumb-sized rounds go through her, ripping the steel like paper, splattering someone's brains across the aft bulkhead. Then, falling into knee-high grass, the air humming with bullets and stinking of swamp ooze, and gasoline and human shit and blood. Spinning wildly, my finger jamming down the trigger of the M-16, not caring any more where the bullets go. And, waking up, in my own bed, Claire beside me, shaking me, hissing, Wake up, wake up, for Christ's sake. I sat up, the taste of it still in my lungs, hands twitching with berserker frenzy. Mm, okay, I said, nightmare. I was back in Nam. What? Flashback, I said, the war. What are you talking about? You weren't in the war. I looked at my hands and remembered. It was true. I'd never been in the army, never set foot in Vietnam. Three months earlier, we'd shot an eyewitness news series on Vietnamese refugees. His name was Nguyen Ki Duc, former ARVN colonel, now a fry cook at Jack in the Box. You killed my country, he said. All of you, Americans, French, Japanese, like you would kill a dog because you thought it might have, you know, rabies. Just kill it and throw it in a ditch. It was a living thing, and now it is dead. The afternoon of the massacre, we got raw footage over the wire. About a dozen of us crowded the monitor and stared at the shattered windows of the Safeway, the mounds of cartridges, the bloodstains, the puddles of congealed food. What was it he said? Something about gooks. You're all fucking gooks, just like the others, and now I'll kill you too. Something like that. But he wasn't in Nam. They talked to his wife. So why'd he do it? He was a gun nut. Black market stuff. Like the M-16 he had. Camel clothes, the whole nine yards. A nut. I walked down the hall, past the potted ferns and bamboo, and bought a coke from the machine. I could still remember the dream, the feel of the M-16 in my hand. The rage, the fear. Like it? Claire asked. She turned slowly, the loose folds of her black cotton pajamas fluttering 
her face hidden by the conical straw hat. No, I said. I don't know. It makes me feel weird. It's fashion. Fashion's supposed to make you feel weird. I let myself through the sliding glass door into the backyard. The grass had grown a foot or more without my noticing, and strange plants had come up between the flowers, suffocating them in sharp fronds and broad green leaves. Did you go? No, I said. I was I.Y. Underweight, if you can believe it. In fact, I was losing weight again, my muscles turning stringy under sallow skin. Me neither. My dad got a shrink to write me a letter. I did the marches, Washington and all that, but you know something? I feel funny about not going. Kind of guilty somehow, even though we shouldn't have ever been there. Even though we were burning villages and fragging our own guys, I feel like, I don't know, like I missed something, something important. Maybe not, I said. Through cracked glass, I could see sunset thicken the trees. What do you mean? I shrugged. I wasn't sure myself. Maybe it's not too late, I said. I walk through the haunted streets of my town, sweltering in the January heat. The jungle arches over me. Children's voices in the distance chatter in their odd pigeon Vietnamese. The TV station is a crumbling ruin, and none of us feel comfortable there any longer. We work now in a thatched hut with a mimeo machine. The air is humid, fragrant with anticipation. Soon the planes will come, and it will begin in earnest. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Lewis Shiner. Lewis, thank you so much. Do pop over to Lewis's website. I will put links on, as usual, the front of the website. Fred, thank you so much, sir. Always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> Let's get into some science news by Jim Campanella. Jim, what's going on, sir, in the sciencey world out there? Happy New Year to one and all, wherever in the world you may be. Welcome to this January 2009 Science News Update. This is your host, Jim Campanella, who is hoping for a great new year to unfold before us. Anything will be better than failing loan companies and strangulating gas prices from last year. This month, instead of concentrating on one big topic, I have three fascinating stories that piqued my interest in the last month or so. I hope that you'll find these stories as strange and interesting as I do. By the way, I have made a New Year's resolution to cut down on my pontificating from this pulpit that Tony has so kindly supplied me. I'll try not to get carried away. Sometimes it is so darn difficult to keep in control when the blood is rising, though. 
I try not to put my large foot in my mouth, but do not often succeed. We'll see if I can even keep my resolution until the end of this podcast. First up is a disconcerting story that was reported at the November meeting of the North American Society of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry. Dr. Megan McGee of St. Cloud University reports that antidepressants like fluoxetine, that is, the brand name Prozac to most people, make fish depressed in laboratory tests. Embryos of minnows grown in trace amounts of the drug did not react as quickly to danger stimuli, and at higher levels of exposure, the fish stopped eating and apparently stopped looking for mates. Worse yet, it appears that Prozac can have an estrogen-like effect on the fish. That estrogen-like activity can cause physical as well as mental changes in young male fish. It can diminish facial bumps and coloration that uh, females actually use to help them choose mates. Unfortunately, while the prey was made depressed, the voracious predators, like striped bass, were not slowed down by trace amounts of the drugs. It wasn't until very high levels of the drugs were used on the bass that they began to lose their appetite and their aggression as well. That's pretty bad for the minnows because it means that under the conditions described, they become very easy prey and likely to die out very quickly due to overpredation. So why are scientists so concerned? A big deal, you say? What difference does it make if Prozac makes fish sad with no sex drive? What idiot is going to go around feeding fish antidepressants anyway? It doesn't seem to make much difference except as an intellectual exercise. Well, it does make a difference. If you guys remember, there was a story several months back that was uh, presented by the Starship Sofa called Pump 6 by Paolo Bacigalupi. And that story postulated a world that could almost no longer function because the groundwater was so incredibly contaminated and polluted. Sadly, we are heading in that direction. Dr. Melissa Schultz of the College of Worcester, who's a specialist in water treatment and toxicology, reports that, quote, pretty much any water sample in the vicinity of a wastewater treatment plant will test positive for a whole group of antidepressants, unquote. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have gotten to the point in history where our population is so heavily medicated that water treatment plants can hardly keep up and we are peeing potential poisons into the streams, lakes, and rivers of the world. And that's why the story about the fish is so worrisome. Although Dr. McGee did her fish experiments in the lab, there's a real worry that out in the wild, the same results may be occurring. And it's not just these antidepressants that are found in wastewater. There's a whole cocktail of chemicals. It's still unclear whether ecologists and toxicologists need to be proactive about solving this problem or just waiting to see if it's actually a problem at all. Tony may actually have some insight on this since water is his bailiwick, but this is one of those ongoing stories where we'll just have to wait and see. Speaking of waiting and seeing, that brings us to story number two. If you were a little freaked about that fish story, prepare to be even more freaked by the next story. Whenever I lecture on cancer in my classes, I talk about the causes of cancer. I mean, the essential cause of cancer is a change in your DNA which induces cells to grow uncontrollably. And that's pretty much the definition of cancer, cells no longer being under control. You may directly inherit those changes in the case of some cancers, like retinoblastoma. Oh, by the way, if you want to read an excellent story about retinoblastoma that captures the disease really, really well, you can read the story From the Corner of His Eye by Dean Kuntz. Anyway, in most cases, in a complex interaction between the environment around you and your inherited genetics, 
you may become prone to cancer. The environmental factors are many. For example, chemicals, carcinogens like those found in cigarettes. Yes, cigarette smoking is still the leading cause of cancer. I was actually kind of surprised as to what the second leading cause of cancer was. Believe it or not, it's obesity. Who, who would have guessed? Besides chemicals, carcinogens in the environment, there's also hard radiation. Gamma rays, x-rays, nuclear radiation, and most people are not exposed to hard radiation. However, the third possible environmental factor, soft radiation, ultraviolet radiation, is really uh, quite common. Uh, ironically, DNA primarily absorbs light in exactly the same wavelength as UV radiation from the sun. And yes, ultraviolet does cause all sorts of damage to DNA because of that. And that's why heavy exposure to the sun does cause such a big statistical spike in skin cancer. The fourth environmental cause of cancer are viruses. And it was only about 20 years ago that viruses were still thought to only be a cause of cancer in animals and not in humans. But that's since been shown to be untrue. There are many human viruses that cause cancer. The most well-known among them is the papillomavirus, which can be caught as an STD and cause genital warts. But besides the genital warts, it can cause cervical cancer as well. There is now an anti-papilloma vaccine available for young women. And, and now we get to that part of my lecture where I always bridle because we're entering into quote-unquote fringe territory. This is the area where science becomes urban legend to the man on the streets. And here's the question. Does electromagnetic radiation cause cancer? In the past, whenever anyone spoke of high levels of EM, they talked about people who lived under high-tension electric lines. Most people on the street will insist that if you live under a high-tension electric line, you will get a tumor. Well, numerous studies in the last 30 years or more have shown that this is false. If you live under those wires, rest assured that statistically, you have no greater a chance than anyone else in the general population of getting cancer. When I tell my students this, inevitably I see a hand shoot up, usually thrusting a cell phone into the air at me. But what about cell phones? I hear they cause brain tumors. In the past, I have quickly put the kibosh to this rumor as being silly, an urban legend, and having no substantiation whatsoever. Unfortunately, I may have to change my tune now. One of the chief makers of Bluetooth gear in the world, the company Interphone, has started this year to correlate research data conducted in 13 countries and 6,400 tumor patients. Although Interphone certainly has a stake in the results, preliminary findings clearly suggest that individuals who use cell phones regularly are 50% more likely than non-users to develop brain tumors. Now, I was scared witless when I read that, and I lost the rest of my wits when I heard how Interphone researchers defined quote-unquote regular cell phone use. Their definition of regular cell phone use is once a week. I thought I was a really light user at maybe one short call a day of a couple of minutes, but once a week? This suggests that if a once a week user is in danger, and I consider myself still a light user at one call per day, then it is likely the risk is even greater for people who use the phone more frequently. Now, these are still preliminary results, but the results of an earlier and much smaller study that Interphone did jointly with the UK, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland 
suggested an increase in tumor risk for people who have used cell phones for more than 10 years. There was an increase of 40% for those long-term users versus no discernible risk for people who have not used a cell phone for 10 years at all. Again, very scary. And the scariest thing is that the researchers have no idea whatsoever how the tumors are being induced. There's simply not enough energy in the EM bandwidth produced by a cell phone to do any damage to DNA. There are some vague, foggy theories that suggest that EM is not doing direct damage, but maybe messing up growth control pathways of cells, but there's no evidence of that yet. And frankly, it is as good a guess as microscopic evil gnomes doing the DNA damage at this point. As I said, it certainly is to the advantage of the Interphone company to do this research because it will increase the sales of their Bluetooth headphones if it turns out to be true. At the same time, if independent research lab groups come to the same conclusions, it is certainly going to change the way we use cell phones in a myriad of ways. By the way, let me make another point about cancer. And this is something that people just don't seem to quite understand. Cancer is not a single disease. I know this is getting off the topic a little bit, but I think it's important for people to understand this. Cancer is not a single disease. Cancer is a dozen or two dozen or five dozen different diseases. There's a huge difference between uh, a myeloma and a sarcoma and every other type of cancer. They're caused by innumerable different changes in the DNA to a whole myriad of different genes. Why am I even making this point? Well, a lot of people seem to think that it's going to be really easy for science to come up with a magic bullet, a single way of curing all cancer. That's like saying that we're going to come up with a single way of curing all disease. It, it simply isn't going to happen. There's no easy way of curing cancer in and of itself because cancer is not a single disease. If it was, then we'd have more of a chance of doing that. I heard a conversation between two men while I was in a doctor's waiting room once uh, several years back, and I just thought it was bizarre. Basically, they were waiting for their colonoscopies, and one man turned to the other and said, You know, I really hate to do this every year. It just it just really sucks. And, you know, I, I think that uh, they've already got the cure for cancer, So, and, and those drug companies aren't telling us about it, and they're making millions of dollars, and you know what? It really isn't fair. And the other fellow turned to him and went, yeah, I agree, you're absolutely right, they got the cure for cancer out there, and uh, it's just not right. And all I could think of at the time when I heard this conversation is, you guys are idiots. If a drug company actually did have the cure for cancer, don't you think that they would actually have it out there on the market, making billions off of it? Could you imagine the, the one thing that a drug company would think of as a golden cash cow but that? Unfortunately, there is no magic bullet. There are no drug companies that are secretly hiding these these uh, cures. It's unfortunate, but but that is the case. And and because, as I've said, cancer cancer is this kind of strange disease which is so very different from many others. It, it may be a long time before anything like that happens. I think that uh, perhaps nanotechnology is is maybe our best bet in the cure of cancer and not drugs and, and not many of the other methods that being able to program a nano robot, if you can imagine that, or a micro robot to be able to find the cancer and destroy the cancer 
and get rid of the cancer in a very specific manner as opposed to other cells, that might be the way to go. And unfortunately, even in that case, you'd have to have a hundred differently type of programmed robots for all the different kinds of cancer. The last news item is freaky, but still seriously cool. Now, I'm a fan of the late SF writer Jack Chalker. He had some great original ideas, and few writers have been able to match him in sheer bravura space opera adventure. And lots of people forget that a good deal of the movie The Matrix was borrowed, quote-unquote, from his Wonderland Gambit books, including the whole Alice in Wonderland theme. But Chalker is most remembered for his obsession with changing the bodies of his characters in radical and weird ways, usually by some sort of body swapping. Men were swapped with other men, women with women, women with men, human into alien bodies. Uh, Chalker's most famous book on the matter, The Identity Matrix, dealt almost entirely with that theme. But you could find the idea in a great many of his books. Uh, in fact, he, along with Mike Resnick and George Alec Effinger, even made fun of his well-known foible in a round-robin novel called The Red Tape War, which is still in print, I believe. Where am I going with this? Well, we still do not have the technology to swap bodies, but there have recently been some neuroscience experiments that suggest that our brains have the ability to swap bodies in a virtual manner. Valeria Petkova and Henrik Ersen of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm have been doing some very interesting work in this area. Volunteers in the body swap experiment stand across from a mannequin or a female volunteer. A headset covers the participant's eyes and feeds him a 3D view of the other body's visual perspective, which is being transmitted from the other body's camera. The two then receive simultaneous visual and motor input. To induce the illusion of body swapping, an experimenter touches the bellies of both the participants at the same time and in the same way, with a feather, for example. The volunteer feels the tickling on their own bellies as they see their counterpart being treated in the same way. This can also be done by shaking hands, for example. The participant feels the shaking hand, but sees themselves from the perspective of the other person. After 10 or 15 seconds of this, the brains of the participants begin to realign themselves to see themselves in the body of the mannequin or the female. Apparently, the illusion is quite complete until it's broken by their own movement. Participants said that the illusion was so good that they believed absolutely that their counterpart would move with them if they moved. Participants jumped backwards, in fact, when a knife was thrust at their counterparts. Participants in the experiment displayed elevated electrical activity on their skin when their counterpart was touched. As my wife said when I told her about this, that is just plain freaky. The results of this experiment suggest that with multi-sensory input into the brain, you can fool it into believing all sorts of things about your body. It's been suggested that these experiments might be useful for better understanding people who have severe self-identity dysphoria or body image problems. The better suggestion is that it may help game designers to enhance virtual reality experiences in games and really bring them to life. I think that the late Jack would be proud that someone is actually looking into this body swap stuff, even if it is just an illusion. Well, I warned you that my science stories were a motley collection this month, but I hope that you found them enlightening. Thanks for listening. As always, take care 
and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, you're a star. Thank you so much. You know, every month it just comes down the line. Jim, thank you very much. I do appreciate it, and I do appreciate that now. All hell's breaking loose. Work, 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 work. Thank you so much for putting the time and effort into Starship Sova, along with everybody. Do you know what I mean? It, I'm getting a little bit emotional here. It, it wouldn't get off the ground if it was just relied on me. There you go. That's the basic reality of this. So thank you, everybody. So we come on to the main fiction of the night by Ken McLeod. And what a story and what a narration. Little heads up for anyone who does not know about Ken McLeod. Born 2nd of August 1954. Award-winning Scottish science fiction writer living in South Queen's Ferry near Edinburgh. He graduated from Glasgow University with a degree in zoology and has written a master's thesis on biomechanics. His novels often explore socialist, communist and anarchist political ideas. Technical themes encompass singularities, divergent human culture, evolution and post-human cyborg reconstruction. MacLeod's general outlook can best be described as techno-utopian socialist. There you go. Ken, thank you so much for this story. What a great story this is. I will put a link on to Mr. Ken MacLeod's website where you can go and follow his blog. Narration today comes from none other than Matthew Wayne Selznick. Give a little heads up for Matthew. He is author, podcaster and new media authority living in Southern California. His first book, Brave Men Run, a novel of the sovereign era, is available in print, iPhone, Amazon Kindle, DRM free ebook and as a free podcast editions can be found at mattselznick.com where you can also find his short fiction, music and his other creative endeavours. This is a great narration. Matthew, thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Jesus Christ, Reanimator, by Ken McLeod. The second coming was something of a washout, if you remember. It lit up early warning radar like a Christmas tree, of course, and the Israeli Air Force gave the heavenly host a respectable F-16 fighter escort to the ground. But that was when they were still treating it as a UFO incident. As soon as their sandals touched the dust, Jesus and the handful of bewildered cops who'd been caught up to meet him in the air looked about for the armies of the beast and the kings of the earth. The only soldiers they could see were a few terrified guards on a nearby archaeological dig. The armies of the Lord hurled themselves at the IDF and were promptly slaughtered. Their miraculous healings and resurrections created something of a sensation, but after that it was detention and shin-bat interrogation for the lot of them. The skirmish was caught on video by activists from the International Solidarity Movement, who happened to be driving past the ancient battlefield on their way to Janine when the trouble started. Jesus was released a couple of months after the Medigo debacle, but most of the rapture contingent had Egyptian ID, and the diplomacy was as slow as you'd expect. Jesus returned to his old stomping ground in the vicinity of Galilee. He hung around a lot with Israeli Arabs, and sometimes crossed to the West Bank. Reports trickled out of healing here, a near riot there, an open-air speech somewhere else. At first, the IDF and the PA cops gave him a rough time, but there wasn't much they could pin on him. It's been said he avoided politics, but a closer reading of his talks suggests a subtle strategy of working on his listeners' minds, chipping away at assumptions, and leaving them to work out the political implications for themselves. 
The theological aspects of his teaching were hard to square with those previously attributed to him. Critics were quick to point out the discrepancies and to ridicule his failure to fulfill the more apocalyptic aspects of the prophecies. When I caught up with him, under the grubby off-season awnings of a Tiberius lakefront cafe, Jesus was philosophical about it. There's only so much information you can pack into a first-century Palestinian brain, he explained, one thumb in a volume of Dennett, or a 21st-century one. Come to that. I sipped thick, sweet coffee and checked the little camera for sound and image. Aren't you, uh, omniscient? He glowered a little. What part of truly man don't you people understand? He'd been using the cafe's internet facilities a lot, I'd gathered. His blog comment section had to be seen to be believed. It's not rocket science, to mention just one discipline I didn't have a clue about. I could add relativity, quantum mechanics, geology, zoology, geography even. He spread his big hands with their carpenter's calluses and the old scars. Look, I really expected to return very soon and that everyone on earth would see me when I did. I didn't even know the world was a sphere. Sure, I could have picked that up from the Greeks if I'd asked around in Decapolis. But I had other fish to fry. But you're... I fought the rising pitch. The creator, begotten, not made, holy God, as well as... Yes, yes, he said. He mugged an aside to the camera. This stuff would try the patience of a saint, you know. Then he looked me in the eye. I am the embodiment of the Logos, the very logic of creation, or, as it was said in English, the Word made flesh. Just because I am, in that sense, the entirety of the laws of nature doesn't mean I know all of them, or can override any of them. Quite the reverse, in fact. But the miracles, the healings and resurrections. You have to allow for some pardonable exaggeration in the reports. I've seen the ISM video from Megiddo, I said. Good for you, he said. I'd love to see it myself, but the IDF confiscated it in minutes. But then you probably bribed someone, and that's not something I can do. Yes, I can resurrect the recent dead, patch bodies together and so on, heal injuries and cure illnesses, some of them not purely psychosomatic. Don't ask me to explain how, he waved a hand. I suspect some kind of quantum hand wave at the bottom of it. But the rapture, the second coming... I can levitate, he shrugged. So? I was considerably more impressed to discover that you people can fly in metal machines. Isn't levitation miraculous? It doesn't break any laws of nature, I'll tell you that for nothing. If I can do it, it must be a human capability. You mean any human could levitate? There are recorded instances. Some of them quite well attested, I understand. Even the Catholic Church admits them. You could teach people to do it? I suppose I could, but what would be the point? As I said, you can fly already, for all the good that does you. As if by coincidence, a couple of jet fighters broke the sound barrier over the Golan Heights, making the cups rattle. Same thing with healing, resurrections of the recent dead, and so on. I can do better in individual cases, but in general, your health services are doing better than I could. I have better things to do with my time. Before we get to that, I said, there's just one thing I'd like you to clear up. For the viewers, you understand. Are you telling us that after a certain length of time has passed, the dead can't be resurrected? Not at all. He signaled for another pot of coffee. With God, all things are possible. To put it in your terms, 
information is conserved. To put it in my terms, we're all remembered in the mind of God. No doubt all human minds and bodies will be reconstituted at some point. As for when, God knows. I don't. I told you this the first time. And heaven and hell, the afterlife? Heaven. Like I said, the mind of God. It's up in the sky, in a very literal sense. He fumbled in a book bag under the table and retrieved a dog-eared tippler. If this book is anything to go by. I'm not saying you should take the physics of immortality as gospel, you understand, but it certainly helped me get my head around some of the concepts. As for hell, he leaned forward, looking stern. Look, suppose I tell you, if you keep doing bad things, if you keep refusing to adjust your thoughts and actions to reality, you'll end up in a very bad place. You'll find yourself in deep shit. Who would argue? Not one moral teacher or philosopher, that's for sure. If you won't listen to me, listen to them. He chuckled darkly. <laughs> of course, it's far more interesting to write volumes of Italian poetry speculating on the exact depth and temperature of the shit, but that's just you. What about your distinctive ethical teaching? He rolled his eyes heavenward. What distinctive ethical teaching? You'll find almost all of it in the rabbis, the prophets, and the good pagans. I didn't come to teach new morals, but to make people take seriously the morals they had. For some of the quirky bits, no divorce and the eunuchs for the kingdom and so forth, I refer to my cultural limitations or some information loss in transmission or translation. I had already seen the interrogation transcript and the blog, but I had to ask. Could you explain briefly the reason for the delay in your return? Where have I been all this time? I nodded, a little uneasy. This was the big one, the one where even those who believed him could trip up. I was on another planet, he said, flat out. Where else could I have been? I ascended into heaven, sure. I went up, into the sky, like I said. Levitation isn't that big a deal. Gravity's a weak force, not well understood, and can be manipulated mentally, if you know how. Surviving in the upper atmosphere, not to mention raw vacuum, wearing nothing but a jalaba, now that's difficult. As soon as I got behind that cloud, I was picked up by an alien spaceship that happened to be passing. You can call it coincidence? I still call it providence, and transported to its home planet. I'm not at liberty to say which, but assume you can't go faster than light. Think in terms of a two-way trip and a bit of turnaround time, and, well, you do the math. Some people, I said, trying to be tactful, find that hard to believe. Tell me about it, he said. They'll accept levitation and resurrection, but I mention an extrasolar civilization, and suddenly I'm a fraud and a new-age guru and a flying saucer nut. Talk about straining at gnats and swallowing camels. He shrugged again, this time wincing slightly, as if there was a painful stiffness in one shoulder. It's a cross I have to bear, I guess. What I was thinking, completely irreverently and inappropriately, was the line, You jammy bastard! from the scene in Life of Brian. I'd stumbled at this point, like so many others. It was all too Douglas Adams, too Von Dyken, too much a shaggy god story. Just about the only people who'd swallowed it so far were a few Mormons, and even they were uncomfortable with his insistence that he really hadn't stopped off in America. We talked some more. I thanked him and shook hands, and headed back to Laud Airport with the interview in the can. When I glanced back from the corner, Jesus was well into a bottle of wine and deep conversation with a couple of off-duty border cops and an Arab-Israeli tart.
I couldn't pitch the interview as it stood. There was nothing new in it, and I needed an angle. I settled on follow-up research with scientists as well as theologians and managed to pull together an interdisciplinary meeting in Imperial College London held under Chatham House's rules. Quotes on the record, but no direct attributions. The consensus was startling. Not one of the clergy, and only one of the physicists, thought it at all probable that we were looking at a return of the original Jesus. They all went for the shaggy god story. He's a Moravok bush robot, an Anglican bishop told me, confidently and in confidence. A, a what? I said. He sketched what looked like a tree, walking. The manipulative extremities keep subdividing right down to the molecular level. He said, that thing can handle individual atoms. It can look like anything at once, walk through walls, turn water into wine. Healing and resurrection, provided decay hasn't degraded the memory structures too far, is a doddle. And can it make Egyptian Christians float into the sky? I asked. He pressed the tips of his fingers together. How do we know that really happened? His little band of brothers could be more bush robots. That's a stretch said the Cambridge cosmologist. I'm more inclined to suspect gravity manipulation from a stealth orbiter. You mean the ship's still up there? That was the Jesuit, skeptical as usual. Of course, said the cosmologist. We're looking at an attempt to open a conversation and alien contact without causing mass panic. Culturally speaking, it's either very clever or catastrophically inept. I'd go for the latter, said the Oxford biologist. Frankly, I'm disappointed. Regardless of good intentions, this approach can only reinforce religious memes. He glanced around, looking beleaguered, like a hunted animal, one of the more vindictive of the clergymen chuckled afterwards in the pub. No offense intended, ladies, gentlemen, but I see that as counterproductive. In that part of the world, too, as if it needed more fanaticism. Excuse me, said the bishop stiffly, but we're not talking about fanaticism, nor is he... He is certainly not preaching fanaticism. Personally, I'd almost prefer to believe he was the original Jesus come back. It would be quite a vindication, in a way. It would certainly make the African brethren sit up and take notice. You mean, shut up about the gay clergy, said the Jesuit, rather unkindly. You see, said the Oxford man, looking at me, it doesn't matter how liberal he sounds or how any of them sound. It's all about authoritative revelation. As soon as they start arguing on that basis, they're at each other's throats. He sighed, pushing biscuit crumbs about on the baisie with a fingertip. My own fear is that the aliens, whoever they are, are right. We're too primitive a species, too mired in all this, too infected by the mind virus of religion to be approached in any other way. But I'm still afraid it'll backfire on them. Oh, there are worse fears than that, said the computer scientist from Imperial cheerfully. They could be hostile. They could be intentionally aiming to cause religious strife. That statement didn't cause religious strife, exactly, but it came damn close. I waited until the dust and feathers had settled, then tried to get the experts to focus on what they all actually agreed on. As I said, the consensus surprised me. It added up to this. The supposed second coming had no religious significance. The man calling himself Jesus was almost certainly not who he claimed to be. He was very likely an AI entity of some type from a post-singularity alien civilization. Further interventions could be expected. Watch the skies. I wrapped all this around the interview, 
ran a few talking head sound bites from the meeting through voice and face-distorting software filters, and flogged it to the Discovery Channel. This took a couple of weeks. Then I caught the next L.I. flight from Heathrow. I was sitting in a room with a dozen men, one of them Jesus, all sipping tea and talking. All of them were smoking, except Jesus and myself. I'd caught up with him again in Ramallah. The conversation was in Arabic, and my translator, Sami, was so engrossed in it he'd forgotten about me. I must admit I was bored. I was, of course, excited at the idea that this man, if he was a man, represented an alien intervention. I was just as excited by my doubts about it. There was, as the bishop had implied, something quite tempting about the notion that he was who he said he was. The original Jesus had explained himself in terms of the religion of his place and time, and had in turn been explained in terms of contemporary philosophy. It begins in the arcane metaphysics of Paul's letters, and in the Stoic term Logos in John, and it continues all the way to the Baroque, Platonic, and Aristotelian edifices of theology. So it was perhaps not entirely strange that this Jesus should explain himself in modern philosophical terms from the very beginning. Right now, though, he was trying to explain himself to Muslims. The going wasn't easy. I couldn't follow the conversation, but I could hear the strain in the voices. The names of Allah and the Prophet came up frequently. For Muslims, Jesus is a Prophet too, and there were plenty of the faithful who didn't take kindly to this man's claims. The gathering here, fraught though it was, was the most sympathetic a hearing as he was likely to get. In terms of publicity, Jesus wasn't doing too well. He'd had his 15 minutes of fame. Religious leaders had refused to meet him, not that he'd asked, and even the scientists who were prepared to speculate publicly that he was an alien were reluctant to do anything about it. I mean, what could they do about it? Cut him up? The defense establishment may have taken seriously these scientists' claims about alien intervention, but there's only so many times you can draw a blank looking for a stealth orbiter before you conclude that there's no stealth orbiter. The general feeling was that something odd had happened, but nobody could be sure what, and for all anyone knew, it could have been a bizarre hoax. There were photographs, videos, eyewitness accounts, radar traces, but that kind of evidence can be found any month in Fortean times and debunked every quarter in Skeptical Inquirer. The only people, apart from his own small following, most of it online, who paid close attention to his activities were fundamentalist Christians. Not because they believed him. Oh, no. They believed me. That's to say, they believed the religious and scientific experts I'd cited in the documentary. They were quite happy with the notion that he was an alien entity of some kind. To them, an alien meant a demon. Worse, a demon walking around in human shape and claiming to be Jesus could only mean one other thing. The Antichrist. I only found that out later. Handshakes all around. Smiles. Frowns. Jesus and two of the men, followers I'd gathered, went out. I and Sami followed them into the muddy street. Breeze-block buildings, corrugated zinc roofs, mud, ruins here and there. It was nearly dusk. Lights in windows, braziers at stalls, the smell of frying chicken. A big Honda people carrier drove slowly down the crowded, potholed street, conspicuous among old Renaults and VW Polos and Hugos. We stood about, a moment of uncertainty about where to go next. Some problem with the traffic. Sami was talking to the followers, Jesus was gazing around, and I was fiddling with the camera. I saw a flash. Th that is to say, for a second, I saw nothing else. Then I saw nothing but sky. 
everything had become silent. I saw two bright, moving lights moving fast, high above. My legs felt wet and warm. I pressed the palms of my hands on damp gravel and pushed myself up to a sitting position. I could see people running around, mouths open, mouths working, cars accelerating away or coming to a halt, everything covered with gray dust. But I could hear nothing. A little way down the street, smoke rose from a flower-like abstract sculpture of bent and twisted metal, the Honda, its wheels incongruously intact. I saw Jesus run towards it. Sami and two followers were face down on the street, hands over the backs of their heads. They didn't see what I saw. I don't know how many people saw it. He leaned into the wrecked Honda and started hauling out the casualties. He dragged out one corpse, whole but charred. He laid it down and pulled out something that might have been a torso. Then he clambered in and started heaving out bits of bodies, an arm, half a leg, a bearded head, more. It was like the back of a butcher's shop. He vaulted out again and knelt on the road. I saw his hands move, with effort in the arms, as if he was putting the bits together. He stood up. Three men stood up beside him. They looked down at the rags that clothed them, and then at the wreck of their vehicle. They raised their arms and cried out praise to Allah. Jesus had already turned his back on them and was hurrying toward me. He wore jeans and scuffed trainers, a shirt and sweater under a new leather jacket. He was looking straight at me and frowning. Sound and pain came in a rush. My ears dinned with yells, car horns, screams. My thighs felt... I looked down. My thighs felt exactly as you would expect, with a chunk of metal like a thrown knife in each of them, stuck right into my femurs. I could see my blood pumping out, soaking into the torn cloth. Everything went monochrome for a moment. I saw his hands grab the bits of metal and tug. I heard the grate of the bones. I felt it, too. I heard a double clatter as metal shards fell upon the road. Then Jesus laid his hands on my legs and leaned back. Up, he said. He held out a hand. I caught it and stood up. As I got to my feet, I saw the pale, unbroken skin of my thighs through the ripped fabric. My camera lay crushed on the ground. Sami and the two followers picked themselves up and brushed themselves off. What happened? I asked Jesus, but it was Sami who answered. Another targeted killing, he said, that Honda. I knew it had to be a Hamas big shot inside. He stared across at the wreck. How many? I pointed at the men, now the center of a small crowd. None. None? They had a miraculous escape, I said. Jesus just grinned. Let's go, he said. We departed. Jesus had a knack for making his movements unpredictable. I and Sami stayed with him and his followers, jammed in the back of a taxi, to Jerusalem. Through the wall, through the checkpoints. Jesus nodded off. The followers talked to Sami. I sat bolt upright and replayed everything in my mind. I kept rubbing my thighs as if I had sweaty hands. When we got out of the taxi at the hotel, Jesus seemed to wake up. He leaned forward and said, Would you like to meet me tomorrow, privately? Yes, I said. Where? You know where the tours for the Via Dolorosa start? I nodded. There, he said, alone. I was still struggling for a remark when the taxi door slammed. I pushed past guides and through coach parties, looking for him. He found me. He had a camera hung around his neck and a big hat on his head, a white t-shirt under his jacket. 
We fell in at the back of a dozen or so people following a guide who shouted in English. I think they were Brits. Jesus rubbernecked with the rest of them. I saw the Gibson film on DVD, he said. What did you think of it? I asked, feeling a little smug. I liked it better than yours, he said. I just report, I said. You could have done better, he said. Moravok Bush robot? I ask you. I'm sorry, I said. Do you deny it? He looked at me sharply. Of course I deny it. What use would a robot be to you? And the whole alien intervention hypothesis? The crowd stopped. The guide declaimed. Cameras clicked. We shuffled off again, jostling down an alley. Yes, I deny that also. And any other natural explanation? His lips compressed. He shook his head. If you mean a hoax, I deny that, too. I am who I say I am. I am the natural explanation. The man in front of us turned. He wore a baseball cap with a Star of David, and his shirt was open at the neck to display a small gold cross on a chain. He reached inside his heavy checked jacket. Blasphemer, he said. He pulled out a handgun and shot Jesus three times in the chest. I grabbed Jesus. Two men barged out of the crowd and grabbed the assassin. He'd already dropped the gun and had his hands up. The two men wrestled him to the ground at gunpoint, then dragged him to his feet. Screams resounded in the narrow space. Police! The men shouted. One of them waved a police ID card like it wasn't obvious. I learned later that they'd been shadowing Jesus from the beginning. The assassin held his hands out for the plastic ties. He kept staring at Jesus. Save yourself now, he jeered. One of the undercover cops gave him the elbow in the solar plexus. He doubled, gasping. Jesus was bleeding all over me. Lay off him, he wheezed. He doesn't know what he's done. The man strained upright, glaring. Play acting to the end, demon. I don't want forgiveness from you. Jesus waved a hand, two fingers raised in a shaky blessing, and sagged in my arms. I staggered backwards. His heels dragged along the ground. One of his shoes came off. It took a long while for the ambulance to nose through the narrow streets. Jesus lost consciousness long before it arrived. I stayed with him to the hospital. The paramedics did their best. They're good with gunshot wounds in the Holy Land. But he was dead on arrival. Jesus. D.O.A. I couldn't believe it. I watched every second of the emergency surgery, and I know he was a man. The autopsy should have taken place within 24 hours, but some procedural dispute delayed it for three days. I managed to attend. It didn't even take much effort on my part. I was a witness. I had identified the body when it was pronounced dead. On the slab, he looked like the dead Che Guevara. The pathologists opened him up, recovered the bullets, removed organs, and took tissue samples. Results came back from the labs. He was human, right down to the DNA. So much for the bush robot theory. There was a burial, and no resurrection. No levitation, and no infinitely improbable rescue. Some people still visit the grave. One thing I'm sure of, this time, he's not coming back. There was a trial, of course. The assassin, an American Christian Zionist, disdained the prompting of his lawyer to plead insanity. He proudly pleaded guilty and claimed to be acting to thwart the attempts of the Antichrist to derail the divine plan for the end times. I was a witness for the prosecution, but I suspect my testimony had as much effect as the rantings of the accused in the eventual ruling. Not guilty. 
by reason of temporary insanity. The assassin did six months in a mental hospital. After his release, he made a splash on the U.S. fundamentalist lecture circuit as the hero who had shot one of the devil's minions, the false messiah, the fake Christ. The man he killed wasn't the real Antichrist, it's been decided. The Antichrist is still to come. Millions still await the real rapture and the return of the real Jesus. Perhaps it was some obscure guilt about my own inadvertent part in Jesus' assassination that drove me to research his writings and the live recordings of his sayings and miracles. They're all online, and the authentic ones are carefully kept that way by his followers. Online and authentic. There's enough apocryphal stuff in circulation already, and far more interest in him than when he was alive. The odd thing is, though, if you trawl, as I've done, through his blog posts, his devastating put-downs in the comment section, and the shaky cell phone and home video recordings of his discourses, it has an effect on how you think. It isn't a question of belief, exactly. It's more a question of examining beliefs and examining your own actions, even your thoughts, as if under his skeptical eye and in the echo of his sardonic voice. It works on you. It's like a whole new life. There you go. What a story. So proud of that. Ken, Wayne, thank you so much. Links to both their sites, as usual, front of the website. Let's get into Skeet and Skeet's cover. Do you know what I mean? And as soon as I got this story, I knew I had to get Skeet to kind of come up with an idea. Skeet, tell us about it. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. I am here with you tonight to discuss the cover and uh, what my ideas were to come up with it. Um, I have to admit that this was a challenge for me to stay within my own religious boundaries. Uh, some of the things I didn't quite agree with here. So, you know, I didn't want to offend anyone who might be sensitive to the very, very delicate subject of religion. Uh, not this, that this isn't really you know, a science fiction story. It definitely has its uh, elements of science fiction being in the future and, uh, you know, possibly, um, you know, a possible future. Um, you know, I picked a few major components that stuck out to me right off at the start of the story. Uh, you know, I was, I was first, you know, when I first started listening to it, um, the setting was with the interviewer and Jesus in a uh, coffee shop. And so, of course, I wanted to kind of set that right off. And, you know, the center piece of the, of the image is uh, Jesus Christ holding his hands over uh, a cup of hot chocolate. And uh, I wanted to establish that uh, immediately, you know, it was surrounded around where he was at. So, of course, the element of the coffee cup uh, was put right there in the middle. And I went ahead and um, used a coffee mug that I thought was rather humorous and kind of in a sideways sort of uh, connection had, uh, you know, kind of fit the story. And so it was... um, you know, you, you go to these coffee stores and all you ever see is these, you know, 150 different mugs hanging on the wall that, 
might be something you'd buy, but more than likely you just pass by. But, you know, a lot of them are pretty funny and, you know, sometimes you pick one up. So I just went ahead and put that in there because I thought it was kind of humorous. Uh, the uh, the scars, of course, you know, I, I used the Photoshop on uh, the photograph that I had taken. And that, of course, tells you who uh, is the drinker of the beverage. As far as the other objects in the picture, you know, it was just a brief moment when the narrator mentions the name Dennett. And I did a little research on Dennett and Daniel C. Dennett. He was a uh, a noted atheist um, who wrote a book called Content and Consciousness, where he explores the philosophies of science and biology, particularly as uh, those fields relate to evolutionary biology and cognitive science. Um, Also briefly, he mentions uh, the dog-geared book that Jesus has um, by uh, Frank Tipler III. He's another author and a mathematical physicist and cosmologist, um, and he wrote the controversial book uh, back in 1994, The Physics of Immortality. So, you know, both these authors together struck me as a very ironic yet appropriate uh, sort of literature for Jesus to be reading at that time. Um, If some of, you know, the religious beliefs there were strange to him, you know, uh, the perspective that, you know, he is just a man in the story, you know, was appropriate because if he's not all knowing in the story, then of course he'll have to catch up with his beliefs uh, of this modern age. Um, as far as the computer laptop, you know, that's easily, uh, explained by, it represents the mention of, of a blog that Jesus has. And, you know, to, to the narrator blog, he mentions it a couple times, and it's a very powerful tool, he says, that reports to have an effect on, on the reader or the listener if there's any audio stuff on the blog. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, when he when Jesus first came and he was, you know, giving his parables, um, you know, he was a very big influence on people simply by what he said. So a blog is pretty amazing because if you, you know, if you look at it like, you know, the small crowd that he affected, uh, you know, in his immediate vicinity when he was first here on earth, you know, in this story, the idea that he would come back and have a, another blog, uh, you know, or another blog, have a computer blog where he would, um, you know, be able to reach, you know, millions of people, you know, that would be a, a really interesting opportunity to hear something from, you know, one of the wisest, uh, of men, or at least one of the most philosophically, um, interesting people that have ever existed. Um, so I put the laptop in there to kind of represent that blog. Um, also, um, I, I put a microphone in there because, uh, of course the, uh, the interviewer or the narrator of the story is, is a reporter. And, you know, he was interviewing Jesus for a video documentation and the microphone, um, you know, of course suggested that. And I also uh, did this uh, photo version because, um, you know, I thought about drawing it and it's, it would have seemed to me like more cartoony or more like um, something less real. And the whole story to me, even though it's, you know, um, it's said in sort of a storytelling sort of way versus something you read in a magazine, I thought it was very much um, giving the impression of a uh, documentation, um, you know, so that it's something like you would pick up on a magazine and, you know, there's 
a picture of Jesus being interviewed by this guy and, you know, you want to see what he was wearing and, you know, what was around him and, you know, the objects that were interacting with him at the time. So I did this in a photo version. So because like I said, I thought it would be more appropriate. Um, you know, I, I won't be doing many of these photo versions things. This is, you know, uh, this is something I've, it's not that I'm drawn to doing this. I just, you know, thought it was appropriate for this particular piece. I do, um, intend to be doing more of the covers, um, uh, as, uh, you know, painted or, uh, you know, computer, um, computer aided drawings. You know, I, I don't want to be giving the impression that I'm more interested in, in doing photo work than, than drawing. You know, illustration can be a broad number of things, but drawing, you know, with pen and ink and going in and coloring and all that, that's really my passion. So that's definitely what, uh, what you all will have to, um, look forward to from me in the future. Um, this piece, um, of literature or short story I thought was very interesting. I thought it was very well written. And, um, the one thing that really stood out to me in the very end of it all was that, um, you know, I like this story simply because it makes you examine the, uh, beliefs that you have, no matter what they are or when they exist, past, present, or future. Skeet, thank you so much, sir. I, again, effort. I'm just gobsmacked by everyone. Thank you so much. Do pop over to Skeet's website. There will be a link at the front of the website. Do pop over there and say hello to Skeet. On to the new titles. And there's only one new title this week. Actually, there's a few fell through the door, but I want to give kind of a little bit of time onto this new title. And what a book it is. David G. Williams, The Mirrored Heavens. And science fiction. And it's been a while since I've actually gotten a science fiction book through on new titles. But it's really nice, to be quite honest, to get one. But like the praise this book's getting. So this is actually going to be my recommended book of the month of the next couple of months. Because at the minute, it is hitting all the right spots for me. And actually, I'm I'm reading it. I'm not just reading the blurb. I'm on to page, let's see, actually, 104 of, what's this book go up to? Probably about 400. And like I say, this is, it's a cracking one. I'll give you a little kind of, this is what Peter Watts says for it. Explodes out of the gate like a sonic boom and never stops. The raises of the mirrored heavens would eat cyberpunks, old guard hackers and cowboys as a light snack. <laughs> I think that's great as well. It is basically, you know, it, it's kind of, it's a mix of like a thriller and cyberpunk. It's turned out to be like a, a really all the things I'm wanting out of a science fiction book, it's providing. Do you know? I'll give you a, like a blurb on the back, and then you, you'll know what's what's going on. In the 22nd century, the first wonder of a brave new world is the Phoenix Space Elevator, built by the United States and the Eurasian Coalition following a Second Cold War. The elevator is the grand symbol of the new alliance of the superpowers, and it's just been destroyed. The mysterious insurgent group Autumn Rain claims responsibility for the attack, but with suspicions rampant, armies and espionage teams mobilise across the globe and beyond. Enter Claire Haskell and Jason Marlowe, US counterintelligence agents and former lovers, though their memories may only be constructs implanted by their spy masters. Bound together by the enigma of the past, they can trust no one. 
For in a time of shifting loyalties, the enemy could be anyone. From a shadowy assassin on the dark side of a moon, to a Euro data thief, to a fugitive making one last border run. As the agents hunt and autumn rain become the hunted, and the superpowers move to the brink of war, the lives of all involved will converge in one final explosive, and a startling revelation that will rewrite everything they've ever known about their mission, their world, and themselves. Ellie Modisett Jr., author of The Saga of the Cluth Sears, an action jam-packed audacious look at the terrifying plausible future, highly recommended. Jack Campbell says, a 21st century new romancer, it starts out at full throttle and accelerates all the way at the end. Like I say, this is one crack and read at the minute. It's just, it just started off on page one. Excellent. You know, it just, boys toys kind of reading. You know, it was, it started off where one, I think it's the, the Marlowe character, which is Jason Marlowe. He just kind of is in this kind of suit, this armored, powered suit. You know what I mean? And straight away, you're thinking, "Oh, go on!" And they just kind of they drop him, and he, he drops in a pod, and then the pod breaks away, and he's in this kind of suit, and it hovers, lands, and there's guns sticking out of this suit, and he just—I mean, that's. That doesn't just help, you know, just make a story, but it's a great way to kick a story off. Like I say, it just does start like that and just builds and builds and builds and builds. What an excellent book. And actually, it was David that just dropped us an email. You know, he blessed me, went out of his way, he dropped us an email and says, Tony, I've got this book coming out. Is there any chance, you know, you might be able to like put in your new titles? And I'm so glad. And he sent it over from America. Do you know what I mean? He posted his cell there and signed it as well. So I'm so impressed. Paperback from, it's a Bantam trade paperback, Spectre Science Fiction. And like I say, the cover is amazing. The cover's got this kind of, like, you know, like I say, a Billy Stamper would like stamp on paper and then half of the words are kind of missing. It's it's really impressive fun, to be quite honest. But the image is like of a city in the background and it's all like, as if kind of hell's just exploded there. You know, everything's like red and the, even the lights on the windows on these office blocks are all red, and then there's some sort of guy there, which I'm guessing is probably the Marlowe character. He's in this suit, standing on this kind of burnt-out building, and he's got this kind of some sort of high-powered gun, but there's guns attached to his back, looking over his head. He's got, like, a full mask on. Great cover, do you know what I mean? And there's actually, there's more blurbs inside. Stephen Baxter says, a crackling cyber thriller. This is Tom Clancy interfacing with Bruce Sterling. David Williams has hacked into the future. Nancy Cress says, the mirrored heavens is a complex view of global politics in a time of crisis. Williams understands that future wars will be fought as much online as off. It is also a rousing adventure. Breathless, non-stop action. Tom Clancy on speed. And you will not be able to guess the ending. Do you know what I mean? Like I say fantastic book it is priced at us $12.40 in canada i'm not sure if it's over in in the uk at the moment but please check it out go to his websites there will be links all over the place on my front of my screen for this there's a couple of and actually got some like bookmarkers as well so david thank you so much this is without doubt one of the best books i've read for a long time this has rekindled a little bit of my lost reading enjoyment. Now, if you, everyone knows I'm kind of a lot into the audio, this is actually a fantastic. It's helped me get back into hard copy reading. So, David J. Williams, 
the mirrored heavens check it out links on the front of the website david thank you so much sir so that brings Oral's Life, show number 61, a showboat of a show to an end. I hope you've enjoyed it. If that has not made you realise how important Starship Sova is in the science fiction world, by God, I cannot do any more. <laughs> I'm really proud of that show. I'm proud of all of them, to be quite honest. But do you know what I mean? Some of them stand out there and go down in the annals of Sova Nord history. So thank you, everyone, that has helped out with Starship Sova. If that has helped you or made your mind up, do support Starship Sova. Come over to the Starship Sova, sign up for the monthly donations, £2.50 a month. And you just help support this great show that everyone is, not just me, everyone is kind of putting together. Do you know, it's everyone out there that's kind of helping, just making this uh, just a fantastic show. So please Pop over. If you don't want to kind of sign up or commit yourself to monthly donations, you know, there's like a, there's a one-off donation. Please, by all means, do that. It just it keeps this thing, all that kind of worry, out of the window where we can kind of concentrate on, you know, not, forget the financial side of it. We can just concentrate on bringing you great content. And that's all that it's about. Don't forget, if you do sign up for that monthly donations, you do get... The Personal Life of Mr. T.C. Smith, the Starship Sanatorium show. Don't forget, if anyone's new to this show, and you know there is a shop out there as well, where you can get the first, I think it's from number 1 to 85, of the Starship Sofa shows. This is where me and Kieran kicked off. You know, This is where we kind of started the grassroots of Starship Sofa. You can go there, you can download all them. If there's an author there who you want to learn about, you know, we might have covered it in them 85 shows Go and check it out. You know, in-depth shows into Philip K. Dick and anybody, to be quite honest. There was enough there. So, pop over to the shop. Donations. Help this bird keep flying strong and fine. And just as a final parting, woohoo! Didn't or hasn't the Starship Sova been mentioned in Asimov's? Yes, along with a few others like Escape Pod and Varian Frequencies. Jim Kelly mentioned the Starship Sova as one of the kind of podcasts to look out for, audio fiction ones in the podosphere or in on the net as a full. So yes, very proud of that, mentioned in Asimov's. So that's it. Starship Sova 61 is put to bed. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for helping out. I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Thank <laughs> you.